Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the James D Podcast Record Club, where each week one of us picks a record for the other ones to review. And this week, it's August's turn. What are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about a, a group who has kind of uh, been lingering in the background of this podcast's existence since the start. They, they had a record shortlisted by one Morgan Diatley on his 2020 list, that of course being the one, the only, Pearl Jam, 90s grunge band. We're here to talk about their third studio album, Vitology. I picked this album primarily because it's weird it's awesome and it's just so many shades of crazy interesting to discuss and kind of the the place it comes from which you can very readily interpret from both the kind of album's production and the lyrical content is a rather interesting one that has proven divisive among listeners over the years as well as the band's uh radical shifts in style throughout the LP's sub one hour runtime. So that's that's kind of why I picked it, because it's just going to be interesting to talk about. And we've talked about Pearl Jam before. Why not build on that? One of our most entertaining uh, little 1991 retrospective episodes, I think, just because it was really great for everyone involved in that discussion, we were all just sucking that album's dick. For it, like it, was like, it was like it was like a bukkake onto that album. It was the yes. It was very enthusiastic and Loads the cool of jizz. The cool thing of, of come. The cool thing about that album, that ten, of course, their debut record, which we reviewed in our nineteen ninety one retrospective. The cool thing about reviewing that was. It's just this album where every song just hits, and we we talked about every song uh, in sequence, and because there was just always something to say. Whereas Vitalogy, which is an album that I love just about almost as much as as Ten, um, and when I was a teenager, I definitely would have said that this was my favorite Pearl Jam record because it is very much like a a teenage me take to have. This is an album where you compared to a record like 10 the structure of this the tone of it the nature of it is purposefully combative you have some of Pearl Jam's most enduring uh beautiful and simplistic songs that have this sort of touch that they've been around forever songs like Nothing Man songs like Immortality these beautiful perfect Pearl Jam songs and you have some and you have some really weird stuff on here. I'm not even just talking about the short, crazy, weirdo tracks like Bugs or the infamous closer on this thing. Hey, mop, hey, Foxy, mop, handle, mama, that's me. Uh, you also have other songs besides those that are strange and competitive and, and, and angry and weird songs like Whipping, songs like Not For You, songs mm. like Satan's Bed. And it, it's a real... It's a mixed bag of a record, but not in the sense that there's huge variations in quality, more so that the sense that there's huge variations in, in tone and what you're actually experiencing at any point in time. I think it's probably pretty comfortably the most uh, kind of confronting and dark Pearl Jam record, although maybe some other people have certain takes on that. And it feels only appropriate, Morgan, to turn to you at this point as the, the group's most avowed Pearl Jam respecter uh what's your relationship with this album resident expert what's the, your relationship the chad 
Pearl the Jam Ch- Respector. The Chad Respector. <laughs> what oh, is this album? What do we need to know? And um, what is this album to you? Yeah, Pearl Jam's third album released in the uh, uh, in like untoppable year of 1994, uh, where this record may not even make my top 10. like 10 and the the sophomore follow-up record versus massively successful world tours this band was everywhere and uh mr vetter the man at the face of it all uh the the truly the representative of the band in most ways was not doing well uh, with that <laughs> responsibility. There, it was about this time, either a bit before or a bit after the release of this album, that the entire Ticketmaster feud uh, unraveled. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was. So you know, Vetter just completely rejecting this sort of idol worship that he had found being thrust upon him, mm-hmm. and Vitalogy as. A response to that is a occasionally experimental, very, as you said, confrontational, and even at times I would describe it as schizophrenic record. Mm. Um, it sounds very much like a band who has found as much success as a rock band could find at the time and then wanting to make the record that would alienate as many people as possible and in so doing uh won a grammy <laughs> and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of pearl jam's career in a certain sense because yeah. after 10 and verses and and i think this record really marks that dramatic shift pearl jam would kind of lose all interest in really appealing to the masses in a certain sense they didn't kind of go down the the, the, the rabbit hole of being a super like bizarro band but they never really sought sort of huge chart success again and i mean this is really the last album that has you know multiple staples of alt rock radio on it from this band and um so there's two things that i think are are very interesting to sort of take into account when contextualizing and kind of examining what this record is the first is that um this record was released in november of 1994 uh, 1994 is more said, an incredibly stacked year for great rock releases. Also, we cannot escape the fact it is the year of Kurt Cobain's death. And this album was actually recorded. Um, the recording began in October of 1993 and finished later in 1994. So part of this was recorded before Cobain's death and part of it was recorded after Cobain's death. And I don't want to read into it too much, but I do think that's an important piece of context. You have had songs like Immortality. I don't know whether Vedder has confirmed that that's kind of about Cobain, but a lot of people have speculated that that, that, that song kind of refers to him. But there is, like, regardless of, of how you, whether or not you see it actively in the lyricism or in the music itself, although certainly the more aggressive and confrontational style of this record would jive, would jive with a lot of what Nirvana were doing, uh, in, in spirit at least, if not indirectly in sound. It's definitely a record that is just sounds dark and acrimonious and pained 
uh, in a way that you know we've some of those previous records have some really dark songs on them 10 especially but not the same kind of darkness as this record this record is like really ugly and there's no sort of sense of theatricality or dramatics to the darkness like there is on the darkest songs of 10 it's just really upsetting at points to listen to and the other piece of important context is the fact that um this is a record that was recorded during a time that was incredibly acrimonious for this band like they very nearly fell apart completely and broke up stone gossard was this close to leaving the band completely uh there's multiple tracks on this record i think where the band's drummer whose name i always forget because it's really weird uh in this era anyway dave abrazizi uh, actually walked out at certain points and you have songs like Satan's Bed, which are actually, the drums are actually played by his drum tech because he just was not around for that. One thing that won't surprise people to learn is that a lot of these songs evolved out of jam sessions. Uh, one interesting thing that Stone Gossard said is that 80% of the songs in this record were written 20 minutes before they were recorded. So there's this sense of, of, of trying to capture a live energy, trying to capture a kind of un sort of, finessed unpolished version of Pearl Jam and one of the things that you a lot of kind of Pearl Jam scholars will relate on anyone who's a big fan of Pearl Jam is that the live experience of Pearl Jam how they sound when they are you know actually just a bunch of dudes together performing not sort of like you know trying to slap it all together in the studio is a different experience to listening to polished studio album Pearl Jam and so in some ways it feels like Vitalogy is the closest you really get to a studio record from this band that simulates the experience or the chemistry of all of these band members together uh, in some ways anyway and, and yeah and the darkness of it the weirdness of it the the sheer bizarro tonality of it all is one of the things that's so attractive about it when I grew up and when I got into grunge um, my girlfriend at the time who got me into grunge in high school gave me a whole bunch of CDs to listen to like a massive pile of like alt rock and grunge CDs and I always remember being very drawn to the Vitalogy CD because it wasn't a conventional CD like it was a sort of like a uh, boxy sort of booklet it was weird oh, yes. shapes which notably took pages out of the real Vitalogy book and artwork drawn from that yeah, it, it was a, a, a book which uh, a friend of mine owns, and that's cool. Can I just take cool a second here to complain about the fact that Vitology has the most frustratingly inconsistent album cover of all time, in that every single different issue of it is a slightly different color, a slightly different resolution. So if you're trying to download this album and put it in your digital library, trying to find a version of the cover that doesn't look like shit and also like looks like the version that you have in your head is fucking impossible. Um, it feels very representative of the album is all i'm saying <laughs> it's like some of them are like red some of them are green it's just like who who decided this you have one word on here one yeah why'd you do this yeah bugs <laughs> so yeah and when you the, the, the thing about this physical release is as august said like it comes with like this i think there was a booklet and it has like you know like 50 pages of illustrations or something or like uh, liner notes and stuff. It's just this really strange package this album com comes in and it has this enigmatic sort of weird like lost treasure feel to it and you put it on and you get, you know, uh, like a, you get the lead-in of, of Last Exit, which is this kind of like gorgeous and sort of classic Pearl Jam intro, then you just get completely upended 
by the heaviness that comes in through there as well, but also in songs like Split in the Black Circle and Not For You, which are just so confrontational, so loud. Yeah. Which is just fucking hilarious. You like listen to that thing and it's that, that like descending riff on Spin the Black Circle, like just sounds so fucking unfriendly and weird. It sounds like the band are like careening towards an inevitable explosion. And I mean, it's, it's like, like if, yeah. It's like, it's like if a dead Kennedy song won a Grammy. Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> and yeah. naturally, during the reception, the 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 speech of the Grammys, uh, Vetter pulled a real Fiona Apple and was just like, "I don't what the fuck, I don't know what, no." Uh, <laughs> I mean, sure. Oh, yeah, I know in the Pearl Jam documentary that I think all of us watched yeah. that one yeah. time. There's that part where he shows that Grammy and basically just tosses it back into his basement. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Stone's basement where he's oh, maybe like, that's I use Stone this, got, yeah, okay. I, I use this as a doorstop. <laughs> that's so much meaner than Kanye pissing on the Grammy. That's like, that's oh just God. so, like, I, I just I left it in my bandmate's basement. <laughs> I don't think yeah. of you at all. I just imagine like he has some like a guest over and Grammys. Like, you want you want a Grammy? Like <laughs> I don't need this. Yeah, I, I imagine there's like some curse associated with having a Grammy, where like you have to physically own it for some period of time before you can rid yourself of it. It's like a curse. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's it's the monster from It Follows. Oh yeah. There we go. <laughs> quick fuck somebody stone <laughs> so, and he said no so um yeah spin the black circle just absolutely bat shit it's almost like a kind of anti-commercial song because in a certain sense it's kind of like a, a, a song that almost feels like it's mocking the listener like yeah you know listen to this album spin the black circle and 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 you know you buy into our fucking bullshit or whatever like you know it's kind of really sort of morbid and sort of kind of irreverent and and silly like i almost get the feeling when i listen to this record that like it's eddie vetter is just so fucked up that he's just kind of like daring you to like hate the album like daring you to stop listening oh yeah because we're spinning the black circle and then not for you where he's just kind of fucking yelling this is not for you for six minutes straight and it's like it's literally like a mocking version of like the song it's like oh this is for you like it's literally just like no bitch i am going to make the most confrontational song possible i also love the line in, in spin the black circle where it's basically like uh he's portraying the protagonist as as rather wanting to like listen to music than have sex with his girlfriend it's like the babe i'm so horny how does it get better every time (laughs) (laughs) this is absolutely an album that resulted from that process (laughs) that's probably a fair depiction of of my experience listening to it as a teenager it's it's just like you get so sucked into it i think something that really epitomizes this album is the way that the drums actually sound on it which are like 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 we kind of talked about how the album sounds in like a broader like darker sense but like the 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 way that the drums sound on this album it's like garage-esque like the snare on last exit sounds fucking enormous and it's not like not for you exactly lets up that much i think of this as their most uh neil young slash crazy horse album Right uh, reference point, yeah, yeah. Uh, Which uh, knowing their influences, 
naturally but like they i feel like moments like tremor christ is like crazy horse at their their weirdest i love i love the way that um that last exit kind of just kind of comes careening in as when you start the album like you just get this kind of barrage of noise that's just kind of fading in and then the song just starts it is like as you say like it's it's I really can't be impressed how when you put this on, especially if you listen to it after Versus, which is like the most sort of commercial and polished sounding Pearl Jam record, I think. When you put it on after that, it's like, it's so loud. Like the way this is yes. mastered as well. Like this album is mastered fucking loud. Oh yeah. it Like I, just on headphones, this is overbearing. And then you get to like the chorus of of Last Exit, which is like a fucking tidal wave crashing over you. I mean, fitting because of the album's oceanographic imagery. But that aside, that's just like such a like just blood pumping moment. I it's an insanely amazing opening to the album. I, I would say it's their best opener. And the the fucking howl that Vetter lets out in like the last 30 seconds or so of the song, it, I I see God. It's yeah, again, like part of that thing the album kind of subjects you to, this kind of like absolute kind of abrasiveness. And you know, and it continues through Tremor Christ as well, which I think is a very underrated song, as has been alluded yes. to. I think really pretty imagery on Tremor Christ that kind of goes a little undersung. Uh, I really like uh, kind of the imagery of the uh, sailor on this song and kind of being lost at sea essentially and, and how that ties into the greater metaphors of like uh kind of savior it, it's a really great little piece within the album's greater kind of narrative i guess you could say while also having some really uh pretty imagery on its own i i quite like it yeah i think there is probably some meta commentary there on like um on savior worship on like the role of rock stars and stuff like within this kind of metaphorical story uh that's told quite abstractly and it just sounds so like unhinged musically as well like the guitar riffs and stuff and the way that there's this twang on the riffs at certain points that just feels really kind of atonal and of course the main riff itself is so like monotone and like kind of like in a lot of ways it reminds me of like a a classic 70s post-punk band like wire except if they were like again really have the loudness turned up like it has a very kind of wire chairs missing-esque feel to it so good and and like and you have this run of just absolutely absurd and like completely listener alienating songs if you're like imagining the casual you know alt-rock consumer and then you get nothing man which is a song that like your fucking grandma would probably listen to maybe i don't fucking know it's just the most tender and beautiful and like everlasting it sort of song. My favorite Pearl Jam song. And honestly, part of it is because of it being where it is on the album. It feels sobering. It's like this this song is like one of the most 
immaculately written Pearl Jam songs, in my opinion. The fucking, she once believed in every story he had to tell. One day she stiffened, took the other side, empty stairs from each corner of a shared prison cell. One just escapes, one's left inside, and he who forgets will be destined to remember. Like, I remember like listening to this for the first time and I was just like, oh my God. It's like- um, And it really can't be emphasized enough how- that is maybe Vetter's best vocal performance, like oh, across their the, career. The part where he's just like, arr, arr, arr. I can't even do it because who could do At it? His yeah, Vetter just loses it. <laughs> the, the, the whole thing, like in terms of sequencing, it's like the first four tracks are like a drunken, like riotous episode where you just kind of like embarrass yourself and you, you know, you lash outward and then nothing man is kind of like the sobering sort of realization of what you've done and the damage you've caused and um it's worth actually (laughs) talking about in tandem with a song that comes much later on the record because there it's often sort of considered like the one side of the coin with this other song which is of course bitter man the other sort of big uh at least from my experience anyway these these were the two songs that i've heard the most on alt rock radio growing up Mm. is another big one for me yeah and 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 as sort of people have pointed out as well they're almost like two sides of the same story like uh, nothing man is kind of the male perspective and bitter man is kind of the female perspective of this relationship that kind of falls apart because of just an inability to properly communicate with each other and also on in bitter man a quite tender story about kind of learning to recognize what you deserve and that you deserve better like it's uh bitter man is such an enduring song to me it's and again like in context like it comes after fucking bugs and satan's beard right so it's it's such a a fucking breath of fresh air at that point in the record like like with the song still starts with like this this nasty doomy ass yeah like yeah what is that instrumental it's like some fucking like you know like the sort of intro you'd expect to hear on like a death metal record before like it really kicks in yeah like uh what is that one record that starts like that sound of perseverance maybe i can't remember yeah this whole album sequencing it really shouldn't work on paper but i think the band's charisma and just dedication to their like they stick to their guns so hard on this album that they make it work and i think as as far as any commercially successful rock group goes that's something you've got to admire on some level whether you enjoy the band or not just because to to release this album as it is is such a bold respectable decision that like i can't help but enjoy at least that aspect of like the the back and forth uh Mm. tides of it i think it like it so consistently flies in the face of good taste or what you would expect from like the radioification of grunge like I, i think another way in which you have to appreciate this album is that like think about the feud between Cobain and Better for a second. Like, think about the comments that Cobain made about Pearl Jam, about how they were this, this kind of like safe, sanitized, radio friendly version of what Cobain saw as a true ethos of grunge, which was to be kind of subversive and to be kind of like, you know, all about sort of reacting against the commercial and say what you will about Cobain's perspective or whatever. That's not really relevant here. But think about, you know, how. Vitter must have internalized that because one of the big parts of that feud was you know how much 
Vader wanted to be liked and accepted by his colleague. And we may never know the actual nature of, of, of actually whether or not what we saw was reflective of their actual relationship. But that had to have been playing on Vader's mind to a certain extent. And I don't think it's a reach to say that was heavily influential on this record, because one of the things the band's members have said is that there was so much disarray among the band while they were making this, that Vader was essentially making more creative decisions than any other member of the band. He was essentially, which was new because he, you know, up until this point was primarily, you know, the, the big front man, the singer, the guy with all the charisma and energy. And you had people like Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament who were the more musically seasoned and like experienced people who were the perceived creative drive. Whereas here, so much disarray that Vedder was taking making a lot of decisions that he wouldn't normally make so I think that you know in terms of how combative this album is in terms of like how abrasive the songs are and how loud and it kind of you know it really does feel like they're in utero in a lot of respects and uh, through that lens I don't necessarily enjoy the really bizarro moments more but I think I can accept them more and I hold them against the record less and I think that's something I've come to understand a little bit about why I really love this album as opposed to just really like it is that those bizarro moments so bits like pride Two and bugs and a divinita which actually incidentally I think is just legitimately a good short song that's very unusual for this band but I like that track but also the closer here as well which is just like you know it's just full-on like uh you know, European sun sort of thing, except like even more, less kind of loud and focused and more just kind of like weird. And, and they're like, yeah, it feels like their sort of version of like a, of a, of a endless nameless or a gallons of rubbing alcohol pour through the strip, like the sort of thing Nirvana would tuck away at the end of their records that everyone forgets about. But except they have, they're not really hiding it here. They just kind of put it there at the end of the record and make you kind of, it's got uh, drums from one of the first drummers from Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think. And it's just a bizarro thing. And so anyway, I've come to really appreciate the record, not in spite of those weirdo, like things that are just kind of tacked on there, but actually because to me, they feel like part and parcel with the identity of what the album is trying to be and what the album is trying to do. And it's a weird balance that it strikes that it works as well as it does for me. And, and maybe part of that is just the nostalgia I have, like the fact that I've had this album in my life since I was very young, uh, or at least young in my proper music obsession. Like, so it's just formative. But I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about that, the really sort of far out bizarro aspects of this record and how they kind of gel with everything else that's happening there for you. I think they work maybe a little bit better in theory than in practice most of the time, just because there are select moments here, which like there, it, it's not a one-to-one -one thing, but like a lot of the flow of this album is basically like these really longer, more developed, significant tracks that do focus on the darker, more abrasive side of their sound. And then like intermission style, one to two minute long songs that sort of break up in between that. And I feel like that's either going to make it or break it for you. That sort of sense of ebbing and flowing. And I've kind of just sort of let it go and have learned to sort of enjoy that kind of, I would almost call it like a tension dispersal. It's like 
clearing the air before it sets up another thing. It's like, it's not always that way, just because the first part of the record is a little bit more consistent, even though I think that like Spin the Black Circle definitely feels more like an experiment than a song, even though I like it as much as most of the songs on here. But there is kind of that weird breakup in like the very middle where it's like, you know, you have Whipping, which is like fun. And then it goes into Pry 2, which is probably my least favorite thing on here, just because I, it, it just feels, rather than feeling strange, it feels unremarkable. And it doesn't like take anything that it's doing far enough to be considered as weird as like, I, I, I hate to say it, but I do kind of begrudgingly really enjoy something like Bugs, even though it's it's obviously got a ceiling and it's not as like, it probably goes on for too long. It sounds like a long, Tom Waits it, song. Like it sounds like a fucking you, Black Rider era Tom Waits song. You, you see the vision. So like, and also seeing Eddie Vedder perform it with an accordion on stage really helps my enjoyment of that. Just having that image in my head is really fucking funny. Um, if you haven't seen that, you need to look it up, essential viewing. But like you have Corduroy before Bugs and Satan's Bed, which are like, that's one of the most like radio friendly songs on this album, which is also one of the best songs on here. And then you sort of retreat from that with the two songs after it. And I'll actually say that the weirdness of Satan's Bed appeals to me a little bit more than something like Prying Two. Uh, but it also sort of feels like something that isn't taken far enough. And after that point, you have those past those two songs. It's like you have Better Man after that, the most accessible song on here. And like you need that to ground you after you've been like, what the fuck is this shit? And then you're just kind of thrown back into it with that. And then right after that, you have I Davinito, which is like, again, that's probably on my preferred end of the weirder tracks on here, just because it sounds fucking odd. The fucking bass on here sounds like a no-wave bass. Like, what the fuck is this shit? It's so weird. And then it just kind of, like, leaves. And you're just sort of, like, perplexed as to what the fuck it even did. But it, at the same time, it, it's very memorable to me. And then it goes into Immortality, which, I mean, like, I I, I feel like the the final song on here is sort of like a, the the epilogue or the, the the end credit reel of the record sort of, whereas Immortality really feels like the definitive sort of closer to it. And it's just like, I have a really, I think I overall just really have the most quintessentially boring take on Vitology, which is that like, I have come to appreciate its weirder moments, but its weirder moments are still just in such sharp contrast to its like high definitive fleshed out songs, which like, and part of me is like, if you had an album full of those songs, I don't know if that would necessarily work as well. Like maybe they needed to develop their weirdness a little bit more just to fully kind of hit this out of the park. I respect a lot of these choices a lot, but I also just can't help but wonder like, Maybe if they had tried a direction like this for the next album too, I wonder what some of these ideas and interstitial moments would have turned out to be. Not that I think that that was even feasible. Like if they wanted to maintain their success or their like artistry as a band, I, I think that that's just unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So it's like Vitology exists in this weird nexus for me where it's simultaneously like one of the riskiest albums a mainstream rock band has like ever put out in their heyday and it's like simultaneously well remembered as like the last canonically great Pearl Jam album which is wrong but still 
wrong. And also, it's something that feels like it doesn't go as far as it needs to to be properly experimental. But it does have enough moments. I mean, it's got its corduroys. It's got its nothing man. It's got its tremor Christ, where it's like, there's so much to love about it. So I can see why someone would gravitate towards it heavily because it is like, like 10 is not a friendly album. It's not even a friendly sounding album. It's a deeply dark album, but it's also like digestible in a way that this just isn't as an album experience. This like changes the form of that. This is like Pearl Jam's white album. We are, we are talking a lot about how sort of off kilter so much of this record is but it really can't be emphasized enough like the more accessible moments that were hugely successful for tons of reasons like better man is uh, maybe the definitive alternative rock song of the entire 90s first grunge song i ever heard i think but like it's even more far-reaching than grunge because it had yeah. such an unspeakable influence on everything that came after it. Not even in not even for the rest of the '90s. After everything that to this day there are bands that are still chasing after a song like this. And if you wonder why it's like the last minute and a half of the song. Uh, when when he gets to she loved him she don't want to leave this way she feeds him that's why she'll be back again and the way that is delivered is like but it does it music does not give get better than this. like the end of black where you're just like mystified i mean it's a beautifully like intelligent song in terms of like under like it communicates what it's like to be you know, kind of feel beholden to someone who is taking advantage of you, but it's not condescending to that perspective at all. And it doesn't insult the intelligence of the woman in the song at all. Like it, it's a, it's something that feels like it makes it seem so easy, but a lot of, I think, songs that, that try to tackle this kind of subject matter from sort of rock band perspectives don't get the, like, don't have the sensitivity of this track. No. Yeah. And like, corduroy is uh, what even need be said like that's the thing about this record is that sandwiched in between all the weirder stuff is just the best songs that this band ever wrote and like yeah it just doesn't really the whole intro of corduroy i could listen to for uh, and like i need a 10 hour loop of that but yeah but then it would also need the the rest of the song because jesus it's up there with uh, Built to Spill's Time Trap in terms of like my favorite song intros of all time. Yeah. Um, I just love that shit so much. August, you haven't had a chance to really speak about your favorite moments here too yeah. much. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about um, um, the, the flow of this record. Yes, I guess a lot of my favorite moments are in fact contained within that, I guess, first half first side you could say even um it's a record where i think it's hard not to be basic with what you love about it because the best moments are such shining beacons of what this band can do in terms of song construction and and just like intelligent hooky fun songwriting so that's really evident to me i i will say i am quite sympathetic to jake's perspective of this album's weirdness not 
going far enough for me in places. I, I kind of wish they went even more overboard than they did, but I can definitely respect uh, what's done here. I really like, uh, I, th- I think I'm coming to agree with Morgan's opinion that Last Exit is just their best opener, although I've only heard four of their records, so that's, you know, hard to say because I, I haven't I, heard it. For the record, I think I'd probably agree. Corduroy is uh, gorgeous. Better Man, gorgeous. Uh, most of it is just a very, it, it is a record to me that it once feels like soothing and combative as there's just these two extremes of uh, emotional tension, which really lends the record a, a great amount of re-listenability just because of how complex and sorted a lot of the emotions are on here in that you as a listener i think you really have to to parse these songs down to the core bare essentials of what they make you feel to really grasp just the vicious primal energy the band is getting at here along with the the just batty wacky moments which are I think in the moment, a lot more fun than kind of sitting on them because I, I would be lying if I still didn't get a chuckle out of uh, Bugs' sudden shift to the accordion instrumentation. And hey, that song even fits pretty well within the kind of celebrity worship uh, narrative of the whole record. Yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons I even like some of the weirder kind of side moments on here, because they still feel unified under the record's central identity, even if, like, at least on a lyrical front, even if instrumentally sometimes they tend to not quite fit within that idea. But, I mean, hell, what fits together here in a way that's totally perfect? Well, and then that's the thing, right? Like, if you view this, and I think it's smart to think about this record through the lens of, you know, celebrity and the the life of, of being a rock star pre and post, particularly post the death of Kurt Cobain. Like, so much of this, I think, is about reckoning with expectations and the role you have to play. I mean, what, let me propose, like, I, I just kind of thought about this. Let me propose, like, a, a, an explanation for the way this record is structured. So one of the things that I appreciate about it is that those weirder moments, your pry twos, your bugs, your aie divinitas, and your mop, foxy mop handle mamas, like, they all come in the second half, right? And they get progressively longer and progressively more kind of further afield from what you might expect from this band. And so to me, it's like, as the record goes on, it gets more and more fractured progressively and increasingly as though like the structure of a record of rock songs is kind of increasingly getting kind of eroded by like, you know, the sounds of the studio, studio chatter, like insane voices inside Eddie Vedder's head, like weird, like nightmares kind of bleeding through. So it's like you're listening to a rock record that's already starting out quite combative like in terms of the sound, but you're still getting reasonably conventionally in terms of structure and sound, like aggressive alt-rock grunge songs. But then like, 
as the record progresses, it kind of starts to actually structurally fall apart. And all of these weird, you know, bits of the studio, bits of the environment, the, the, the fractious nature of the band's relationships start to actually bleed into the album. And you get those weirder moments more and more frequently. And actually, and they take up more and more time until eventually you just get that, you know, eight minute jam at the end that's completely, you know, not even, I, I don't even know, I think maybe one or two members of the band even play on that. <laughs> like it's it's not, it's the drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers, as I said, I'm sure there's others on there as well. Like it's it's almost as though you get to the end of this record and like Pearl Jam have completely fallen apart and you're just left with like, you know, uh, the sound of, of you know a, a dead band essentially and i think then it's meaningful that the climax of the record is immortality right because this is a song you know whether or not you think it's about kurt cobain i think there's a very strong uh, way of reading it through that but honestly it's just a song about being an idol like being a rock star the experience of feeling pimped out through that the experience of being like as privileged as a whore victims in demand for public show swept out through the cracks beneath the door holier than thou surrendered executed anyhow scrawl dissolved cigar box on the floor a truant a truant finds home and a wish to hold on to but saw the trap door in the sun these are some of Eddie Vedder's most moving lyrics in my opinion like right up there with release and some of the most emotional songs on 10 like the but there's an abstraction here like artificial tear vessel stabbed next up volunteers vulnerable wisdom can't adhere like it's very fractious it's very abstract but it's gutting and you have that fucking guitar solo right in this song which is just absolutely soul rending like there are definitely days and I'm sure Morgan, you could probably agree with me here. There are definitely days where this is like my favorite Pearl Jam song. Certainly one basically whenever to it's it. playing. Yeah, exactly. Whenever I'm listening yeah. to it, I can't imagine anything more powerful from this band. And so I think that in terms of this kind of meta structure of a band falling apart, but also like being under so much weight from like label expectations and the expectations of a rock star, and also like how how absurd the expectations of being a rock star must seem in the wake of Kurt Cobain's death when it's like, you know, this amazing figure that we all looked up, looked up to, this person that I considered like a friend or at least a colleague that I saw as some kind of kinship in is now dead. And what is, you know, how dear, like everything else seems ridiculous in the wake of that, right? The Trying to be a rock star, trying to make rock records, all of it seems pointless and stupid. And so you get a record like Vitalogy as a response to how, yeah, saturated and kind of commercialized and capitalistic and sort of vacant of its early kind of primal punk joy, the grunge scene had become by that point. And that's what makes this record so powerful as a holistic thing. Like the individual songs are great. But as a holistic statement from Pearl Jam, I think that it ranks among the most, some of the most, most vivid and emotional and kind of gut-punching grunge records or just alt-rock records in general of the 90s. It just has that darkness to it and it embraces it and it doesn't try to dress it up. And yeah and it's everything it's everything you could want a Pearl Jam record to be and a few things you didn't want it to be but fuck you it's that anyway and I love I mean, it you've got the two records before this which are almost like the the weirdness is even better because it's like well if you want more consistent Pearl Jam 10 is right there and if you want a little bit weirder Pearl Jam versus is right there so like whatever man yeah absolutely I just yeah I, I adore this fucking thing so much 
there are those moments where you're like this definitely this approach definitely sounds better in theory and on paper while you're listening to it but you're also just like i respect it as an entity as a whole so much more than i enjoy listening to it and believe me i enjoy listening to it a fucking lot so i it's it's a very strange record and uh, it is so inconsistent that it loops its way back around to being extraordinarily consistent in how deliberately and often it wants to wrong foot you yeah it's one of the most important albums and statements in the history of the progression of rock music and the music is there to back it up Mm. i i'm on record i like in utero a lot more than you guys do but i think we could probably maybe all agree this is feels like a more successful and emotionally powerful kind of execution of some of the same ideas of that record not to equate them too much because that record has a lot of its own sort of emotional baggage that's very much tied in with Kurt Cobain and his artistic personality. But in terms of these like aggressively anti-commercial reactions against some of the most commercial music they put out beforehand as a way of kind of commenting on how fucked up the industry had become and how kind of commodified grunge had become, Vitalogy is like the definitive statement, I think. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's more far-reaching. Uh, it's better written it, because of its sort of quote-unquote inconsistency. You know, just Satan, Satan's bed followed by better man, if you will. There are parts of this record that are not remembered in the way that parts of In Utero will be because of In Utero sonic consistency. Uh, and particularly because, like, the the songs like better man and nothing man and corduroy were the ones that got popular off of this album and the songs that got popular off of in utero were heart-shaped box which is like you know just as gnarly and fucked up as the rest of that album so it's if i were to guess which one will be remembered for what it said more i would guess in utero but do I think this is the more nuanced and musically interesting record? Uh, yeah, duh. Yeah, in utero for what it said, vitology for how it said it. Yeah, and I think like I always, I often think when I think about this record, like when people complain about the last track, which I get, but like you know, never mind had endless nameless. Uh, tacked on to the very end and Neuro had gallons of rubbing alcohol they were hidden tracks but they were still the end of the record and and the only difference here is that foxy mob handle mama is like officially the last track but it works in the same function as those two tracks work on those nirvana albums which is to say it's a fucking car crash right like endless nameless and uh gallons of rubbing alcohol are ear sores they're unlistenable (laughs) but like that's the whole kind of thing that that a lot of these bands Vitology leaves you reminding you of how weird it was it like yeah. has to end that way I, mm. I feel like if it ended conventionally that's a half measure you know yeah yeah and I see a lot of kinship between songs like Immortality and like All Apologies which I think are both yeah, yeah. examples of like you know two of the best songs of their respective bands 
And when you think about juxtaposition, like right, like Satan's bed into better man is kind of like a better execution of what uh, in utero does with milk it into penny royalty, for instance. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, great album. <laughs> Should we do our favorite tracks and yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm gonna sit here from the Chad uh, hasn't heard in utero and uh, not care. You know, you know, I have that record club spot open. That might be fun. <laughs> okay. You might fuck around. Might fuck around. Might find out. Uh, sleep, find out. Yeah. sleep on it. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Be careful with what you do. All right. Favorite tracks and ratings <laughs> from Pearl Jam's Vitalogy. Jake, why don't you go first? Uh, my three favorite songs on here. I'm gonna go with Nothing Man, Tremor Christ, and Corduroy. Uh, least favorite, Pry Two. Uh, I give the album an eight out of ten. August. Uh, favorites here are gonna be a uh, last exit, nothing man, and immortality. Least favorite is Satan's bed. Uh, I give it a seven out of ten. Yeah, my three favorites on here are nothing man, immortality, and last exit. I could say bugs for my least favorite, but you know, to, to, I don't want. Bugs in my head. Fuck you. Uh, I don't think they're that dumb. Uh, I, you know, I've been. It's uh, I, I'm, I'm hedging. I was hedging between a nine and a half on this, and I think it's just time to stop being a coward and give this a ten, because that's pretty much how I feel. So. Here we are. Beast mode. My favorite yeah. tracks on this record are Corduroy, Immortality, and Nothing Man. Uh, my least favorite track on this record is uh, Pry 2, I suppose. Um, but yeah. Uh, and I, I originally had this at an 8, but after kind of talking myself through it and, and kind of realizing the concept in my head as we recorded this, I'm going to bump it to a 9. This album is... One of my favorite grunge records, full stop. I think super influential on my tastes. I cannot deny how important it is to me. And I genuinely believe it's a nine out of 10 record. So I that, would hope so. Well, yes. Well, that uh, brings, it's not, what I mean is that it's not like a, a, a pity up, a pity raise. Like I genuinely feel it with yeah, all my pussy. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, that gives it an average of 8.5 for Pearl Jam's Vitalogy. Let us know at home what you think of Pearl Jam's Vitalogy. Do you think this is one of their best records? What's your relationship with it like? What are your thoughts on some of the weirder moments, some of the best moments? Is it How do you come down on it in terms of how weird it is in relation to some of the other grunge records we've mentioned in this episode and talked about in the past? Let us know in the comments below. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please remember to give us a five-star rate and review if you haven't already. And you can head over to the link in the description, visit our YouTube page, leave us a comment there if you would like to, like the video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't done that already. And all of these things uh, help us a lot to be able to keep doing what we're doing. We've got some good momentum going on at the moment. We want to keep it up. Um, if you want to go above and beyond and support us even more, you can hit the join button on our YouTube page. And for just $1 a month, you can support the channel directly. Be one of our besties. Get your name featured in the title call of every video on this channel. Plus get priority comment response 
And if you want to recommend us a record to listen to, your recommendation will go to the top of that as yet non-existent pile. Anyway, August, it remains to you to send us home. Yes, as always, folks, uh, rock over London, rock on Chicago, Volkswagen, think small.